This morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 15. Um, If you're a guest with us or if you're newer to us, we have been journeying verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark uh, since um, Easter of last year. So we've been in it for about a year and a half. We've got two weeks left and everything is online podcast-wise if you want to try to familiarize yourself with some of the things that we've been covering. But this morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 15. And as you turn there, um, I'd, I'd imagine for many here, when we think of someone or we describe them as being a courageous person, we think of someone who does something that is incredibly bold or some great action or some great feat that they may or may not be applauded for. I know when I think of courageous individuals, oftentimes my mind goes to the many different true accounts that I've read of men and women during World War II and the the great acts of courage that they demonstrated in the face of fear and in the face of great personal cost. Well, this morning we take time to look at a man in Scripture who we have not seen or heard of or heard from throughout the entire Gospel of Mark until now. And um, we, when we see this moment, this one little window into his life, we find a man who moves in great courage and great boldness uh, in his love and his passion for Christ. And in doing so, in the courage that he demonstrates, I believe that he gives us a number of things that we can look at, a number of things that we can consider in our own lives when it comes to being more courageous, specifically in regards to being courageous and sharing our faith and the responsibility every believer has to share our faith. So let's look at the story of Joseph of Arimathea in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse number 42. It says, it was, the day of, it, was prepara- it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of a rock. Then he rolled a tomb against the entrance of the tomb. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. If you're like me, when I read through the Gospels, many times I'll read through them, and my mind many times will struggle to keep the right details in the right Gospel account. Has anybody else ever struggled with that, trying to remember, was this, God, was this story, did it take place in Matthew, did it t- take place in Mark or, or John, where did it take place? And sometimes I'll read through the Gospels, and of course there are certain details that occur in all of them, and it's kind of the, the non-negotiable details, remembering and recognizing the death of Christ and the certain things that he said or certain things that he did. But then there's other details that happen along the way in the Gospel accounts in all four that... Some, some of them are only recorded by, by one writer. By, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit prompted that person to write it and this person not to. And some of it had to do with the audience they were writing to. Others had to do with their perspective. Any number of things. But I've often struggled to keep in my mind which stories go in which of the Gospels. And someone has once told me, or I've heard rather said a number of different times, but specifically told to me that um, when, when God says something once, we should consider it significant. When God says something twice, we, can, we should consider it of great significance. We should really pay attention. But when God says it four times, we should slow down. We should stop and really try to listen to what it is that the Holy Spirit is saying. 
Well, when it comes to the story of Joseph of Arimathea, he has not appeared in any of the gospel accounts anywhere up till this moment, which really represents a period of about, about three years. So in the gospel of Mark, he went 15 chapters before he showed up. In Luke's gospel, he goes 23 chapters. In John's gospel, he goes 19 chapters. In Matthew's gospel, he goes 27 chapters. He spends almost an entire three years of Jesus's ministry not showing up. We don't hear anything about him. We don't know who this man is. We don't know, know anything. And all of a sudden, he just shows up. He takes a great step of courage to demonstrate his commitment and his discipleship, his his commitment to following Jesus. And in taking this great step, he really gives us uh, several things about courage to consider. But when you look at the four different accounts of Joseph of Arimathea through the, the four different gospels, there are a few things that we can begin to piece together about him to know a little bit more uh, about him. And just a quick casual reading, he's someone who comes and goes incredibly fast in the story uh, of Jesus being buried, uh, taken down from the cross and buried. And so sometimes it's a small detail that we can miss. But when you look through the four different gospel accounts, there's a few things we learn. Number one, we, we know his name. We know his name is Joseph. Second, we know that he is from Arimathea. Arimathea is a, a town that many scholars trying to attach it to where it falls in the Old Testament history is that many believe that it is the original town called Ramah, which is the town where Samuel, one of the great leaders of the nation of Israel, had come from. So it's a very significant town to the, to the country, to the people. And so we know that his name is Joseph. We know he's from Arimathea. We also know when we look through, whether it's here in Mark or we look through some of the others, we know that he is a member of the great Sanhedrin. If you real recall, when we looked at the unjust trial of Jesus and looked at what he was willing to endure for you and for me, we talked a little bit about the Jewish judicial system and about the different Sanhedrins and the different ways that individuals uh, could seek justice. But then we talked about the great Sanhedrin. And the great Sanhedrin, if you recall, is what we um, could really liken today to our Supreme Court. It's like the, the top court of the land. The one in Jerusalem was the great Sanhedrin, and we see that Joseph of Arimathea is part of the great Sanhedrin, so he's really a part of the elite leadership in the nation of Israel. We also know, in, and according to even to what we read here in Mark, it tells us that not only was he a member of the great Sanhedrin, but it tells us that he was a man of high standing. And Luke tells us that. Luke tells us specifically that he's a man of high standing. So not only is he among the elite and leadership of the nation of Israel, but he seems to be kind of a head up even among the other leaders that are there. That he's a man of great standing, even among, he's a leader among leaders to those that are serving with him. We also know not only is he a man of great standing, the gospels tell us that he is a man who is a godly man who's righteous. And for the word that they use to describe him as a man who's righteous is very different than a lot of the words that are used to describe the righteous acts of the other religious leaders. The word that the gospel writers use to describe the righteousness of Joseph of Arimathea is the same word that they use to describe the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, what they're saying is that Joseph of Arimathea is not a man like the other religious leaders who is caught up on his own self-righteousness. He's not caught up on his own religious work. He's not caught up on his own efforts, but rather he, has, he truly has faith in the work of God and faith in what the scriptures say about the faithfulness of God. And he realizes that his right standing before God is not based on how religious or perfect he can be, but on the grace of God that ultimately would be demonstrated through Jesus Christ on the cross. 
And it tells us that he is a, he's a righteous man. It also tells us a few other things when you look in the gospel accounts. It tells us that he didn't consent to the trial or the treatment of Jesus. That he wasn't in favor of the way that they tried to set him up. He wasn't in favor of the way they tried to have, they had him executed. He wasn't in favor of the illegal trial that took place at night. It says that he wasn't in favor of any of it. He didn't consent to any of it. It also tells us that the gospels go on to tell us again about Joseph of Arimathea is that he was a man of standing, a man looking forward to the kingdom of God. It says this right here in Mark chapter 15 verse 43. It says that he was a member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. That he was sincere. He was sincere in his faith. He was sincere in his pursuit of God. And then we also know that he was a rich man. And then John tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus. So while this man has just showed up in the scriptures and just from these few couple of verses, we, we really can take a quick picture and understand that this is a man who's very sincere about scriptures, very sincere about his position, and understands the significance of what's taking place. Um, one of the things that we'll see, and I believe it's in the Gospel of John, is that another religious leader, another member of the great Sanhedrin who came and met with Jesus privately at night, that's in John chapter 3, his name is Nicodemus, that it's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who come and ultimately take Jesus' body and, and bury him. And we see that, and the, really they're identifying these two men are, are some of the great leaders and the great teachers of Israel, and they've recognized the significance of what God has done through Jesus. But I really believe that as we look at, we look at Joseph of Arimathea, he's been absent for three years, he's been behind the scenes, and then all of a sudden he shows up and he takes this great step of courage. Five things that I want you to consider regarding courage, specifically when it comes to courage and sharing our faith as a follower of Jesus Christ. The first thing that I want you to see about courage, the first thing is to understand is that courage requires conviction. Courage requires conviction. It requires an understanding of what is right, an understanding of what is, what is on the line, an understanding of what you believe. Look with me again in the Gospels, but I'd like to invite you to turn over with me to John chapter 19. This is the account of, of uh, Joseph of Arimathea, but from John's account. Verse 38. I just want to look at one verse. Verse 38. John nineteen thirty-eight. It says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. It says, later, Joseph came, but it says that he was a disciple of Jesus, but he was a disciple who lived in fear. See, fear will always restrict your faith if you'll allow it to. Fear will always limit your willingness to say yes to Jesus if you'll allow it to. Just think about different ways and different areas that fear has affected your life, and it'll, it'll always limit your ability and your willingness to step out, to take a risk, to do something different, to do something that's, that's outside the norm. It, fear will always limit your faith if you'll allow it to. John says, John 19 tells us that, that Joseph has been a disciple of Jesus but he's been living his faith in fear. Most likely, much like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he found ways to meet with Jesus at night. He found ways to, to meet with Jesus kind of off the main scene, away from the other leaders. He was very sincere in his faith, wanted to know about Jesus, wanted to know what Jesus was teaching, but he, he, he was in fear. 
He was in fear of the other leaders, those he served with, the others, and, and what they might think of him, and so he lived out his faith in fear. However, even though he was living his faith in fear, he continued to listen to what Jesus would say. He listened to his teachings. He listened and understood, and because he knew the Scriptures, he knew what the Scriptures said about the coming Messiah, that as Jesus would teach, as Jesus would heal, as Jesus would perform, as Jesus would rebuke evil spirits, and he'd rebuke the religious leaders for their activity in the temple and all these different things, things continued to resonate in Joseph's life as he was listening and watching Jesus and watching how he demonstrated, uh, really lived out the, the... the prophecies about the Messiah. So Joseph lives his faith in fear. But then I want you to see something. Verse 38 again, but I want you to see it in the ESV. Can we have you switch that? In the ESV, here's another translation of the exact same verse. It says this. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission So he came and took away his body. But look at those first words. In the NIV, it says says later, but look how it's translated here. And this is really a little more accurate. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea. After these things, what things? The cross. Joseph had just witnessed Jesus being arrested. He had just witnessed Jesus standing innocently in front of these leaders who were condemning him and false accusations. He had just witnessed the silence of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus in the face of all of this. He watched how Jesus conducted himself. He watched how Jesus embraced everything that was unfolding. He watched how Jesus willingly went to the cross. He watched how Jesus died on the cross. He watched how Jesus forgave those who were persecuting him. He watched everything. He watched and saw the dark darkness sweep the land. He watched and saw the earthquake. He watched and he saw the temple veil being torn. It says, after these things, that Joseph of Arimathea had been living his faith in fear. But then the moment he looked to the cross, the moment he saw the cross, the moment he looked and he said, after I see the cross, after I see what Jesus has done, after I see what Isaiah 53 says about the Messiah, the suffering that he will endure, the ridicule that he'll endure, the sin that he will die for, he said, after these things, after Joseph saw the cross, that he took a great and courageous step of faith. See, he developed a conviction of what it was that Jesus had done. He took an assessment and came to an understanding of the cost of the cross and he came to that place where he moved his, from living his faith in fear to living his faith with conviction. And he took, he took assessment of the cross. Look with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12. See, I think for each one of us, oftentimes the first step of willing to be courageous in sharing our faith, that the first step always begins with a proper understanding of the cross. We talked last week about what the cross means and looked at just a few of the things. But true conviction of of the love of God, true conviction of why we share our faith, true conviction of why we take courageous steps in our faith always begins by looking to the cross. Look what Hebrews, rather, chapter 12, verse 2 says. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
It says we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We don't fix our eyes on what might be in front of us. We don't fix our eyes on the fear that may hold us back. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We always lift our eyes to the cross. We're always reminded of the great price that Jesus paid for us through the cross. That if you find in your your life and in your faith that your faith is just kind of going through the routines, it's just going through the motions, that there's a lack of passion, there's a lack of conviction, you find yourself fitting in more with the crowd, fitting in more with what others are doing, fitting in more with what others are saying, that there's not a conviction in your heart of living out your faith, then look back to the cross. Look back to the cross. Look back to what Jesus has done for you. See, I think oftentimes we look at courage. We talk about courage. We hear a message like this about courage. And I think oftentimes we mistakenly think that the opposite of courage is fear. We think, we mistakenly think that the opposite of courage is fear. And if you think that, that I do believe that fear and intimidation are a part of the barrier, but, but fear is not the greatest obstacle to courage. I believe the greatest obstacle to courage is ignorance. It's ignorance. It's not knowing what we believe. It's not knowing what hangs in the balance when we don't share our faith. It's not knowing what hangs in the balance when we're not willing to be courageous, to step out and to let God use us based on the conviction of who we know him to be in spite of what you may see around you. God desires for you and me to move with conviction and to take steps of courage. The Bible tells a story in the Old Testament of a young lady, most likely a teenage girl, by the name of Esther. And Esther, many of you are probably familiar with the story, but the story of Esther, that she's living, the, the Israelites had been defeated, they're in exile, and Esther is selected to become the next queen, and this is kind of the Cliff Notes version. I would encourage you to read it in your, for your own in, in the book of Esther in the Old Testament. But Esther is selected to be the next queen, and as she's there, and she's the next queen right next to the King Xerxes, and King Xerxes is like the most dominant man in the land that there's no one who can stand up to him, that he has no rival. He's just, he's the absolute authority. And Esther's been picked. She's a Jewish girl. They don't know she's Jewish, and she's been picked to be the next queen. And in the midst of all of this, there's an evil man by the name of Haman who begins to un- un- unfold a plot to eliminate all of the Jewish people. And Haman is an advisor to the king, and so he begins to lay out this plot. He begins to share it all the while. Esther is keeping her her Jewish hereditary, and she's keeping it in the, the background. She's keeping it quiet. She's not taking any steps of faith. And finally, along the way, as this, this plan unfolds, and, and Haman begins to really lay out his plan and has it all set up, even gets the king to pass an order, Esther's uncle comes to her. He's been the one who's raised her. She was an orphan. He's the one who raised her. And Esther's uncle comes to her and he says, he basically tells her, he says, Esther, you need to go to the king. And she's like, well, you know, I could be killed for going to the king. And she lays out kind of the risk. And he, he tells her this. He says, don't forget that it was for this moment that God puts you here. Don't forget that it was for this moment that you've been ordained into this place, into this moment, into this time, and into this space. And what he was telling her was he said, Esther, you need to rediscover the conviction of your faith and who God is. You need to rediscover your faith and the conviction of what he desires to do through you. And you need to recognize the opportunity that he's putting in front of you to act. 
And the story goes on to tell us that Esther steps forward with great conviction. She goes before the king regardless of the cost that, that it could, could cost her, meaning her life. And ultimately, through her, God spares the nation of Israel. But she was willing to take a step. She was willing to not be ignorant about the cost of what it would mean to, to stay quiet. And I truly believe for you and for me this morning, the first step in really living a courageous life is developing a conviction. A conviction, and it may, it may mean just a revisiting to the cross, spending time with Jesus and looking in his word and remembering what the great price that he paid for you. But then also remembering that the great price that he paid for you, the great passion that he demonstrated on the cross for you to take away your sin, to restore you to a relationship with God, is to remember that he didn't just die for you, but he died for the sin of those in your life. He died for the sin of those who've never heard. He, he died for the sin of those who perhaps are living in your circle of influence who will never hear the gospel from anyone but the one believer that God has put in their life, and that's you. And it begins with a conviction. Courage begins with a conviction and an understanding of what's right and what hangs in the balance. I think secondly, first, not only does courage require conviction, I think secondly, that with courage, courage requires action. Courage requires action. Look with me in verse number 43. So Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. It says that he went boldly to Pilate. Other translations, one says that he worked up the courage. Another translation says he mustered the courage. A different one says he found the courage. See, Joseph didn't just wait for some divine bolt of courage to come and find him. Can you imagine if he just was standing right outside Pilate's door and just pacing back and forth and just kind of waiting for this divine gift of courage to float down from heaven and he continued to wait and continued to pace? It says that he mustered up the courage. He realized that a step of courage on behalf of Jesus, of demonstrating his faith in Jesus, that it would require a step of action on his part. He realized that courage doesn't replace fear. See, oftentimes we think that. We think that courage replaces fear. Courage doesn't replace fear. Courage chooses to do something in spite of fear. Joseph would, or Joseph would have been pacing outside of Pilate's walls, no doubt afraid. Pilate was a ruthless man and very vicious leader. He would not have wanted to go and appear before him. But Pilate, but rather, Joseph was willing to recognize that if anything was going to happen, he had to take action and to do it. See, oftentimes I think not only do we, do we mistakenly think that, fear, that courage replaces fear, when really courage is, is something we do in spite of fear. When, when you look in the dictionary and you look up the word courage, you'll find that it's not a verb, it's not an adjective, it's a noun. It's a noun describing what's the ability to do something in spite of being afraid. And I believe that that's what Joseph did. He, he realized that courage requires action, so he took a step 
of action. When you look in the book of Acts, when you look through the, 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 the New Testament and you look in the book of Acts, sometimes we can lead ourselves into thinking that steps, that courage and great boldness that are, that only they gift, they're a gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then until he gives it to us, that we really kind of just stand off and, and we're sheepish. And there is truth that the Holy Spirit gives us the gift of courage and boldness. But if you'll look in the book of Acts, if you look in Acts chapter two, he gives the gift of courage through the gift of the Holy Spirit coming and living in them, but he gives it to objects or to individuals who are already in motion. Jesus told his disciples to go and to wait. He gave them the assignment. He said they were going to be, they were going to be his witnesses, and he gave, he gave them the assignment. But he said, your first step is to go wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the power of the Holy Spirit. They were already in motion. They had already gone to wait. They had already gone to pray. So the Holy Spirit came and he, he filled them and they moved with great boldness. And we'll look at that more in just a moment. But he gave the, he, the Holy Spirit came and filled them and they moved in boldness and courage, but he did it to individuals who were already in motion, already willing to go. See, I think two things that are really, when it comes to, to courage and realizing the action that is required, is that I really believe that most divine opportunities that God puts in front of you and puts in front of me, that there are two things that we mistakenly do with it, and, and with that, we miss it. The first thing, when it comes to recognizing the action that needs to be involved with our courage, is that I believe oftentimes we, we mistakenly think that courage is a feeling. And so we wait until we feel courageous. We wait until we're willing to take a step. We wait until we feel the ability to take the step. And when we do so, we miss and misrecognizing the divine window God's given us to step out and be courageous, to take a step of courage, even in spite of feeling afraid. So first, we mistake it to be a feeling. Secondly, when it comes to taking uh, steps of action, when it comes to courage, is we mistakenly fail to realize that every opportunity God gives us comes with a limited lifetime. There's a limited window for every single opportunity that God puts in front of you. Look with me again in, in Mark chapter 15, verse 42. It says, it was, a day, it was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, and then it goes on into how Joseph approached Pilate. But it says it was preparation day. Preparation day is the day leading up to the Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath began on a Friday at 6, and it concluded on, on Saturday at 6, so it went from evening to evening. The Friday, the hours and the time leading up to it was called the preparation day. Now, if you were to take the timeline in the Gospels that it gives us with the death of Jesus on the cross, it tells us that Jesus died at 3 p.m. He died on the cross at 3 p.m. The Sabbath began at 6 p.m., a three-hour window for Joseph to do something. For this, once the Sabbath began, Joseph was not allowed to do any work. He was not allowed to do anything, anything other than really to the, the, the short little win, things of observance that they had in, in fulfilling the Sabbath, which included he was not allowed to touch a dead body, nor was he allowed to, to, uh, to bury a body. And so Joseph realized that if he was going to do anything with the body of Jesus, he had a limited window of opportunity to do it. The Romans didn't care about what happened to the bodies of the victims they had crucified. They either left them on the cross so the animals could come and, and the birds of prey could come and they would just slowly eat them away and oftentimes they'd leave the bodies there as a deterrent for against future crime. Or the, the soldiers would pull the body off the cross and they would discard the body in the local dump. 
Now, scriptures tell us very specifically in the Old Testament of what God's plan was regarding when, when Jesus died, not allowing his body to see decay, not allowing bones to be broken. And so there was a divine plan hanging in the balance of Joseph's willingness to act. He had a very small window of time, a very small opportunity to act. And so he seized the moment. He went forward. He took some steps of courage. He was willing to act on being courageous, even though he didn't feel courageous in the moment. And because he did that, we now are reading about him in all four of the Gospels. I think oftentimes, again, we, we fail to realize that, that courage requires action and that many times there's an opportunity that's being put in front of us that has a very limited lifetime. To, to act upon. A, few, a couple of weeks ago, I had taken my wife out on a date, and we were just downtown on a Thursday night, just walking around and just spending some time together, and we slipped in a store uh, right there downtown, and as we went into the store, and we were there, and it was a smaller store, but we had gone to the back, we're looking at a couple of things, and it was closer to, to the close of business, and the, a couple of ladies at the front, they're college-age students, were working at the counter, and they had some friends who were there sitting up right behind the counter with them. And they were just talking, just making small talk as friends and just, just carrying on conversation. And one of them had the radio and they had the radio playing. You could hear the conversation throughout the whole store. It was big enough to kind of be in the back, but not so big you couldn't hear. And the conversation was just unfolding. And, and as it was unfolding, one of them uh, was flipping through the radio. And as they flipped it, to, went to one station, uh, some song came on. I really don't remember what the name of the song, probably Justin Bieber or something like that. And as the song is playing... Um, they start singing along with it and just kind of having a, a fun thing. And then they flip the station again and there's conversation happening all around it. But then they, another song comes on and they sing it and kind of just this thing is happening. We're, my wife and I are in the back looking around. Well, midway through that flipping through the radio, there's a Christian song that comes on, an older worship song. And one of the girls begins to sing along with it. So my wife and our ears kind of perked up or listening to the conversation around it. And then they start talking about church and youth retreats and youth camp and all these things. And it was, it was in past tense, like it used to be, not involved necessarily in church anymore. And then a couple of them sang the song, and then they flipped it and went on to other uh, songs that were on. And the conversation continued to go. Now, I was in the back of the store. My wife and I were in the back. If I heard that and had immediately just rushed up to the front, I think I would have spooked them. So I just kind of, we finished shopping. But in the meantime, I'm thinking this whole time, just thinking, how can, I would love to go back to that conversation and just to talk with these ladies. How can I, this is just a, like a, a divine window being put in front of me. So I'm just there and as we're getting ready, we have one small thing, we're getting ready to check out. There's not other customers around. Um, I mean, I, I have all the feelings that come when, when you get ready to take that step of faith. All the doubts, all the questions, all the things, what if you're gonna say the wrong, all those things, they come to my mind too. And I'm there and we check out and just before we leave, I just, I say to them, I said, hey, I heard you ladies flipping through the radio. I'm like, oh, yeah, and they kind of very friendly strike up a conversation, and then I reference the song, and I said, I, you, I heard you singing this song, and I heard you say this about church, and I'm like, oh, yeah, and they start talking very friendly, and I just begin to talk with them about church, asking them if they found a church home. I'd never mentioned that in that, we're, that moment that we were the pastors here, and I just, I just said, have you connected to a church? And they said, no, we haven't, and we just start talking a little bit, and in that window of conversation, maybe three minutes at most, just allowing the Holy Spirit to lead it, I was able to give testimony to my faith in Christ and the importance of my faith in Christ to my life. But just a small window, because I realized if I left the store, can you imagine if I left the store, the store were to close in a few minutes, chances are I would have never seen those young ladies again, that that opportunity that I had to be courageous and take action, 
that opportunity would have disappeared and would have never resurfaced in my life again with those ladies. But it's realizing that courage requires action. Third, courage requires your voice. Courage involves your voice. Look with me in verse uh, 43. Joseph says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. It says he went to Pilate and he asked. He went to Pilate and he used his voice. He went to Pilate and he expressed what he needed. He expressed his identity with Christ. Now, keep in mind, Pilate was the one who just gave the execution order for Jesus. And if you were with us when we looked at this, the the religious leaders, the ones who Joseph is identified with, they were the ones who really had manipulated Pilate and put him in a place where he had to put Jesus to death. So in the midst of all of this, Joseph is really sticking his neck out and identifying with the fact that that he identified with Jesus as a disciple and that he wanted the body of Jesus. Joseph, or Pilate could have made Joseph's life very miserable. But Joseph was willing to take and take, put action to his courage, and he was willing to use his voice in expressing his identity with Christ. There are many times that I will hear individuals when it comes to sharing their faith and being courageous in sharing their faith, that there's phrases that sometimes we'll use to justify perhaps not necessarily sharing our faith in the way that we should. And a couple of them are, sometimes I'll hear individuals say, well, my, my life is my testimony. When it comes to sharing our faith, so my life is my testimony. And it's kind of like, well, hey, I'm living the gospel. I'm putting it first. If I might not be expressing faith in Jesus, but others should be able to see the testimony of Jesus in my life. Another phrase that I've heard that is often um, associated, given, it's given credit back to a very old saint, Saint Assisi, but it's not really, actually doesn't even go back to him if you were to look at the, the history of it, but it says to proclaim the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. Those are two phrases that oftentimes I'll hear believers use to try to, to give expression as to why they're not putting, using their voice in proclaiming the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And if either of those two things are, are in your line of thinking or why you don't share your faith, I say this as gentle as possible, but in all honesty, there is not a more unbiblical way you could think about sharing your faith. The Bible does not say that we're to let our life be the testimony. Yes, our life is to give evidence of the hope we have in Jesus, but it always involves our voice. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, that it involves your voice. And while you may not feel the power of the gospel every time we declare it, the Bible says the promise of God is upon that word that's declared, that there is a power and there's the anointing upon those words of hope and those words of truth as they're spoken to individuals. Look in, look in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Look what Jesus tells his disciples in just a moment. It says, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He didn't say go into all the world and let your life be your testimony. He didn't say go into all the world and let your life be your witness. He didn't say go into all the world and proclaim the gospel at all times and only use words when necessary. He said go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. It always involves your voice. Sharing the gospel, sharing the hope that you have in Jesus Christ always involves your voice. And I really think when it comes to it that it's not lived correctly if we're not expressing it. That if you're not expressing your faith and you're not able to put your faith into words and to express the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, then there's something wrong with that faith. 
Because the Bible says faith in Jesus Christ involves recognizing the responsibility that you and I have to share it with others. That if you're not talking about it, something's wrong. Two others very quickly. Fourth, courage accepts the cost. Courage accepts the cost. If you look at the story of Joseph of Arimathea, it tells us that he went to Pilate. We've already looked at the verses. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And in that willingness to go and ask for the body of Jesus, that Joseph immediately was willing to pay the price on several levels. In John 19, when it describes Joseph getting ready for this moment, it says that he went out and he bought, and it gives the the amount and the number of spices that he bought. But if you look at it, what he bought when it came to the quantity, he bought such a large quantity, it would have been very expensive. The quantity that he bought for burial was a quantity that was typically only used for royalty. So he went and spent a great amount on, on the spices and things that would be needed to, to prepare the body of Jesus. So it cost him financially. It cost him relationally. Not all, he, remember, he went and he approached Pilate for the body of someone that his fellow workers, the fellow Sanhedrin, had just worked hard to put to death. Many of them would have been his friends out of relationship. And if you remember in the Gospels, it wasn't just Joseph who was interested in what happened to the body of Jesus. It was the other religious leaders. Because if you recall, they asked Pilate to put a guard at the tomb, meaning they know who took the body. They know where he put it. And they were, they were concerned that the disciples would come and steal the body and say that Jesus had resurrected himself. So they were there. They may have been there watching Joseph take the body off the cross. But he was willing to pay the price financially. He was willing to pay the price relationally. And he was willing to pr- pay the price socially. If you look in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 19 specifically, it's a, it's a list of a number of things that take place in, with Jewish ceremonial law and what a Jew is allowed not to do and what they, they can do. And one of the things that, that a Jew is told not to do is to not touch the body of a dead person. And it says if they touch the body of a dead person, whoever the individual was, the Jewish person who touched that body, that they were considered ceremonial unclean for seven days. They had a list of things they had to do, ceremonial washing, but they were not allowed, they, they were excluded basically from society for the next seven days. That meant that any upcoming Jewish ceremonies that fell in those next seven days, they couldn't be a part of. That meant that any feasts that came along, they couldn't be a part of. If you recall in the storyline, we're just, uh, we're just coming right up on the great feast, the Passover feast. And Joseph has willingly gone, taken the body of Jesus off the cross. He's willingly defiled himself and made himself unclean. And he's willingly given up what is probably the greatest, the greatest feast and celebration in the Jewish history in that moment. He did something that no Jew ever would do. And that is be willing intentionally to, to become ceremonial unclean so that he could not be a part of the Passover feast that was to follow. He was willing to pay the price to be identified with Jesus. Look with me in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, very quickly. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus says this, and oftentimes we we think about paying the price and being willing to pay the cost of, of taking a step of courage following Jesus. And when we think of everything that's happening in our world, we think of ISIS, we think of the number of things we hear and the Christians who are suffering and dying because they're willing to take a step of faith in Jesus. Sometimes we can fail to, to realize that even though you and I may never live in a society or live in a day where your life may be on the line because of your identity with Jesus Christ, and that day may come, but currently it's not there, but that doesn't mean that you and I are still not called to daily pay the price and to, to pay the cost, really, in, in 
being courageous and taking steps of faith for Jesus. Look in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. That there is a daily cost to saying yes to Jesus. And saying yes to Jesus means taking courageous steps of faith and sharing our faith with others. And you might look at it from your life and it it could cost you relationally. Becoming a Christian could cost you relationally. I know we've had times we've had international individuals with us who have expressed the way that their faith in Jesus Christ has physically cost them. It's cost them family members. It's, their life has been on the line. It's cost them business. For you, it might, it, it's going to be costly. But we never measure the cost in light of the temporary moment. We always measure the cost in light of eternity. And Jesus says, according to Luke chapter 9, that it's always worth it. To identify with Jesus is always worth it. And then lastly, the very last thing, is courage is a choice. Courage is a choice. It comes down to a choice for you and for me. Every single thing we've talked about with Joseph and how it applies into our lives from being willing to use your voice, being willing to put your faith into action, being willing to to develop a conviction, to every single thing along the way, being willing to pay the price, it comes down to choice. Joseph made the choice to take a step of faith and be identified with Jesus. When you look through Scripture, we cannot minimize the significance of the choices that you and I have. If you look with me in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Acts chapter 2, verse 14, final verse I want to give you, Acts chapter 2, verse 14. This is on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has just come. He's filled the disciples. Peter's giving testimony to Jesus Christ, giving testimony to his faith in Christ. And it says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then he goes on into giving testimony to Jesus Christ. But it says, Peter stood up. Peter made the choice and stood up with the eleven and raised his voice. Peter made the choice to raise his voice. Peter made the choice to address the crowd. So when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and one of the things that we're going to look at specifically in the new year is, is a multi-week um, message that I'm going to call How to Grow in Relationship with the Holy Spirit. And one of the things we're going to talk about when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that He does not come in and, and in a dominant way, a robotic way, take over a personality, take over their action, but rather He flows through the giftings and the abilities that, he's, that He has already put into that individual. And so when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and filled Peter and the other disciples, he filled them with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, and he used them with great boldness, but they still had to make a choice to say yes. They had to make a choice to be used. They had to make a choice to be courageous regardless of the cost. And as you follow them through the rest of the book of Acts, the disciples, you'll see that they were used greatly and they were ultimately willing to pay the greatest cost possible. And friends, that's a reminder. The Holy Spirit works through a willing heart that's willing to be used. 
And he's willing to work through you, and he's willing to work through me. But we have to be willing to take steps of faith, to be courageous in sharing our faith, and allowing him to work through us. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning as we prepare to close. And as we close this morning, you know, you might hear everything that I've shared in, in about Joseph. You might hear everything that I've shared about being courageous. And you might hear this and think, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all true. We, I see it in Scripture. But you might say, well, that's just not my personality. I mean, I'm more of a quiet person. I'm more of a behind-the-scenes person. Uh, we can have all these number of things. And, and what your assessment is, is of your personality is probably most likely true. Maybe you are a quiet person. Maybe you are a behind-the-scenes type person. But what I would encourage you then to do is to look for God to use you to raise your voice behind the scenes. Look for how God may use you in your own quiet way to still give evidence and testimony of Jesus Christ. With certain personalities, you're going to connect with individuals in ways that others can't. But all through Scripture... From first to last, there's never a point, there's never a window where God says, I will speak through these individuals, but if you have this personality and this personality and this personality and this personality, we'll just use you behind the scenes and I won't speak through you. It's a reminder, God wants to use you and he wants to use me as we're willing to say yes and allow him to work through our lives in whatever way he puts before us and the opportunities that he gives us. Let's bow our heads and let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning. I thank you for the power of your Spirit here in this place. I thank you for your work in our hearts and in our lives. And I pray, God, that as we have taken time to look at your Word, the things you've shared, the things that you've put on my heart, I pray, God, that in this moment that you would take those things and by your Spirit you would quicken our hearts. I pray that by your work you would work in this moment, work in us, and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.